You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. I'm excited to share a very special episode of the Women's Health Cast. So you are about to listen to a fascinating conversation between two preeminent surgeons at the University of Wisconsin. Minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon Dr. Kara King from our Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology spoke with Dr. Jacob Greenberg from the UW Department of Surgery about incisional hernias. Incisional hernias are a complication that occurs in about 20% of patients who have major abdominal surgery. They discussed current best practices and specific choices they might make during hernia repair surgery and how to help patients reduce their risk of incisional hernias and improve their recovery after hernia repair. So good morning, Jake. Good morning, Kara. Um, I'm excited to talk to you this morning. Um, he's coming from the Uni- University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Surgery, and he's here to talk about hernia prevention and repair, as well as uh, quality collaboratives that he's working on. Um, so thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. So before we dive into hernias, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, what is your area of specialty here at uh, in Madison, and um, what is your role in medical education here? Sure. Uh, So I'm an associate professor of surgery uh, in the Department of Surgery here at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, My clinical practice is in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery. Uh, So uh, most of that centers around repair of uh, abdominal wall defects, so uh, inguinal and ventral hernias. Um, uh, And then a practice that has some benign foregut disease, swallowing disorders, and weight loss surgery as well. Uh, I also serve as the General Surgery Residency Program Director, uh, so I'm in charge of, uh, of helping to run our training program uh, and help oversee our residents and make sure that we are training uh, the, an excellent next generation of surgeons. Um, my wife and I moved here in 2011, so this is, I think, the beginning of my eighth year on the faculty, and uh, it's just been a great um, opportunity and experience for both of us, so we've been very happy. Very nice. We're definitely lucky to have you both here. So the reason we have you here today is because you recently came to the University um, of Wisconsin's OBGYN Grand Rounds, and you gave a really phenomenal talk, um, again, about hernia repair and prevention. And so I was hoping to gain a little bit more insight on you on these topics. So to start, what makes an incisional hernia different from other types of hernias, um, and how common do you see these? Yeah, so um, so I do think that they are fundamentally a little bit different than primary ventral hernias. Um, incisional hernias obviously it occur uh, at sites where someone has taken a knife to a patient, uh, either one of us or some other person that was uh, trying to harm them. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they occur in about 20% of patients who undergo midline laparotomies. So about one in five patients will end up with what I would consider to be sort of a major complication of an operation that then requires at least one more operation to deal with. So it is a very common problem that we see after surgeries um, and one that I think uh, needs more attention to try and reduce those rates. Primary ventral hernias such as uh, regular umbilical hernias, epigastric hernias um, are also very common but uh, actually have greater rates of success when we repair them either primarily or with a piece of mesh than incisional hernias do. I think with incisional hernias, it's usually indicative of some patient-related factor that uh, that we either need to control better or uh, try to modify to, to help prevent. Uh, but they just tend to f- tend to form at a much higher rate in those patients. So, 
20% sounds really high. Um, so what are the costs associated with hernia repair surgeries, both to the healthcare system as well as to the patient? So it's actually um, uh, been pretty well studied, and, and I, I still don't completely understand um, uh, how they came up with these numbers. But So the cost of the health system is variable. Um, depends a little bit on whether the procedure is done as an outpatient or an inpatient. Uh, it depends on whether it's performed laparoscopically or open. And it also depends significantly on what type of mesh is used. Uh, mesh cost is a major driver of hospital costs. So uh, synthetic meshes, uh, such as plain polypropylene or polyester, can cost anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to even less than that. Versus the other end of the spectrum, biologic meshes, which are either usually human skin or pig skin that's been treated with a chemical process to kill the cells, can be upwards of about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Wow. So there are significant differences in the cost of mesh that lead to significant differences in hospital costs. Um, there are also, unfortunately, a significant number of wound-related complications. So uh, we see a lot of um, uh, skin necrosis, seromas, wound infections things that require uh, both more acute care in the hospital and then more home care for patients after surgery. And so those also can be major drivers of increased costs after a, a incisional hernia repair. And then I think it, the, the thing that's really hard to factor in is the, is the cost to society because most of these patients have to take a significant time away from their jobs. Uh, if they do a job that requires manual labor, they can be out for a month or even longer. Um, and then they also have to come back for several visits. So it's lost labor time. It's, it's time spent on gas money and, and doctor's visits. It's a very expensive thing from beginning to end uh, for both the patient, uh, potentially for society, and certainly for the hospital as well. So it sounds like there's a huge range in prices for the different types of mesh that you can use. How do you decide which type of mesh to use for which patient? So that's an excellent question and one that I think as a group we still don't have great consensus on. Um, so uh, everyone, every provider does things a little bit differently. I, I try to kind of follow the data and do sort of usually the more conservative things. So I, I use my CDC wound classification to often uh, determine which type of mesh I'll put in. So for clean cases, meaning that we haven't entered the GI tract, there's no ongoing infection, it's a sterile procedure. For those, I use plain uncoated synthetic mesh. So it's the least expensive. Uh, it likely has the best long-term rates of, uh, of recurrence, uh, so lack of the hernia reforming. Um, and, and again, is just incredibly cheap for what you get out of it. Um, it becomes a little bit more complex when you have clean contaminated or contaminated cases because those meshes are a little bit more prone to infection and then those infectious complications have both costs and then factors for the patients downstream that leads to often additional surgery. So uh, then you're left with the decision of trying to decide between synthetic meshes, the biologic meshes, which mm -hmm. are extremely expensive and still have the potential to get infected and fail, and a sort of newer class of synthetic absorbable meshes, which are priced in between the two, uh, but degrade over about six to 18 months, depending on which product you use. Uh, I tend to use those for more clean contaminated and contaminated cases because even if they get infected, they are going to go away. And there's been good studies to show that they actually have decent rates of recurrence and wound complications associated even in a complex patient population like this. Got it. And in regard to using mesh or not using mesh, what type of um, hernia 
lengths do you use as that criteria? Yeah. So, um, so uh, length and width, um, with width actually usually being the more important feature because that's kind of the way that the tension comes together on the tissue. There's uh, studies that actually show that even for primary hernias of two centimeters or greater that we probably do better in terms of rates of recurrence with a piece of mesh. Um, the trade-off with mesh is that there is usually a higher rate of wound complications associated with a mesh-based repair than a primary repair or a suture alone repair. So usually for primary hernias um, of less than two centimeters, uh, I will fix them with just suture alone. Greater than two centimeters, I'll usually supplement that repair with a piece of mesh. For incisional hernias, there's a really good article published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a randomized controlled trial done in Europe where they actually looked at and, and there was a nearly a two-fold increase in the rate of recurrence for primary versus mesh-based repair. So for incisional hernias, my thought is that most, if not all, patients actually need a piece of mesh for those. Hmm. And in regard to the infection rate of having mesh in place, you know, as uh, a minimally invasive GI surgeon, in my practice, I do um, a lot of total laparoscopic hysterectomies where mm -hmm. I have a vaginal cough involved. Are there any procedures where you would not recommend including mesh because of the other procedure being done, meaning, you know, I enter the vaginal canal? Does that increase the risk of infection in the mesh itself? It, uh, so it does, um, because again, it converts a case from being clean to clean contaminated. So it does increase the rate of wound complications, and it does increase the rate of mesh infection as well. Um, I actually still feel that you can absolutely use mesh in cases like that, but I wouldn't generally recommend that mesh be placed in an intraperitoneal position, uh, because then it would be exposed to the bacteria that you've uh, that you've unleashed by taking out the <laughs> uterus. Um, True. Uh, and so usually I try to place it within the either an extra peritoneal location, uh, so within the layers of the abdominal wall, uh, or behind the rectus muscles, uh, where we can get it again in sort of a nice uh, a privileged space that has good blood supply, um, is kind of walled off from the uh, intraperitoneal uh, compartment, uh, and, and likely has lower rates of mesh infection associated with it. Very good. And also, so for dirty cases, so if you have a case where a patient has a hernia and a piece of their colon is perforated, uh, mm -hmm. there, honestly, I would say less is more. Fix the problem that you're mm -hmm. dealing with. Don't worry about the hernia. If you can just suture them closed, suture them closed. Know that they will develop another hernia that, that you can then fix at a later date in a clean fashion. That makes complete sense. So in regard to the high rate of hernia recurrence, um, what should we be doing as surgeons differently during surgery to maybe decrease that risk of hernia, hernia formation in the future? Yeah, so I, I think that's where we can really maybe move the needle here. Um, and there are a couple of different strategies for hernia prevention. Um, uh, there have been studies in Europe largely that have looked at the use of prophylactic mesh uh, during high-risk operations. So uh, a couple studies that looked at its use in patients with a BMI over 30 or in patients who were undergoing open AAA repair. Uh, and in those studies, they found uh, statistically significant and likely clinically significant benefits from using a prophylactic piece of mesh versus no mesh when they closed the patient. Um, in fact, in the AAA study, there was a, a hernia formation rate of 0% in the mesh group. Uh, versus about 30% in the no mesh group, which is what, what we see. Those patients are high-risk hernia formers. Um, that's not common practice in the United States. Uh, in fact, there's not even a CPT code for prophylactic mesh placement, so surgeons aren't able to bill for it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not the right thing to do. Um, 
I think it does bring into questions contamination, right? So if you're doing a colectomy and at the same time plan to put in a prophylactic piece of mesh in someone who's obese, there's going to be a real rate of mesh infection in those patients that wouldn't be there if you closed them primarily. So it, it, it's not, it, it's, there are definitely some cons with, associated with it, but it certainly may have a role in the care of patients in the future. I think the better studies and the more convincing argument is made for the way that we close the abdomen. Um, historically, here in the United States, and I think across the world, we were trained and told that you close the fascia with one centimeter bites mm -hmm. that are one centimeter apart. And most of us use big sutures with big needles, um, often O-loop PDS or number one loop PDS on a very large needle. Um, and that closure technique is actually incorrect. Uh, um, it leads to a high rate of hernia formation when compared to probably a better suture closure technique used, utilizing small stitches with smaller bites. Uh, so the studies from this came from both Sweden and then from the Netherlands where uh, uh, they did two different randomized controlled trials. The first one from Sweden uh, randomized both emergency and elective general surgery patients to either traditional closure with a, a looped PDS on a large needle or small bite, small stitch closure. Uh, with a 2-0 PDS suture on a very small needle. For that technique, they take a half centimeter bite back off the edge of the fascia. They capture only the aponeurosis, so try not to get any fat or any muscle into the tissue. And they have about a half centimeter stitch interval too. So they're about um, uh, multiple more suture bites uh, throughout the fascial closure. And it does lead to increased closure time. The goal of taking all those small bites is that they end up with a suture length to wound length of four to one. And that allows for enough abdominal expansion uh, without causing any extra pressure on the suture or risking the uh, burst or break of that suture. They also use um, self-tightening knots. So instead of tying the suture, which can theoretically increase the risk of fracture of that suture, uh, they tie a knot that tightens down onto the fascia rather than onto the suture itself. They then run and do an Aberdeen hitch to again tie the suture back to itself and start the next suture two centimeters before the last one was tied. So at every point, the sutures are overlapped. Uh, and they found statistically significant reductions in the risk of hernia formation with that technique in Sweden. And then they reproduced it in a multi-center institutional trial in the Netherlands too. So the hernia formation rates went down by about 12%. Um, and so a, a pretty significant benefit um, from taking about an extra four to six minutes in the OR to close the fascia appropriately. That's remarkable. So one thing that I'm thinking about, so these studies are primarily out of the Netherlands and Sweden. Their BMIs might be a little bit different than the population that you and I are operating on. And I, I know you mentioned that they're using a 2-0 stitch to close that these, these incisions. 2-0 to me sounds pretty small, small, right? Very small. I just think about the bellies that we're working on. So are you using a 2-0 right now or are you using a zero? So uh, in the uh, the stitch trial, which was the, the Netherlands trial, which is published in The Lancet, I think the average BMI in both groups was about 24, right? What? So that is way lower than what we normally see. But they had an incredibly high rate of smokers, which are, uh, yeah. which are also a significant risk factor for hernia formation. So I, I would agree that it's not necessarily apples to apples because our apples are a lot bigger than theirs. <laughs> True apples. Um, but, uh, but they were still definitely high-risk patients. Um, I do worry about using 2.0 in our patient population where most of the BMIs that I see are at least 30 and if not 35 to 40 um, or often frequently bigger than that. So I use O. 
uh, I do use a small needle. Um, I do use the self-tightening knots. Uh, I do use the stitch overlap that they recommend, but I use an OPDS rather than a 2.0 uh, for my own comfort. So you can sleep better at night. Right. It's uh, it's not data-driven, but uh, it, it is give me a little bit more reassurance that uh, a 2.0 suture won't uh, break under the stress of a BMI of 35 or 38. And then you showed some really excellent videos when you came to our department, Grand Rounds. And that slip knot that you create, very similar to an endo loop knot, it looks yeah. like. Do you have any videos online where we could reference that? Um, I don't, but I'm sure that I could probably post one or find one. It's uh, it's called a half blood knot, and it's the same knot that uh, fishermen use to tie flies onto fishing line. Um, it is the same knot that an endo loop is made out of. Um, and once you see it and do it a couple times, it's very straightforward. Um, uh, and seems to work well. It's really slick, and I think we could definitely apply that to our surgeries as well. So in my practice, I perform mostly minimally invasive GI surgery, so I don't have very many laparotomies, but I do perform many laparotomies for tissue extraction. So I oftentimes make a two to three centimeter incision at the umbilicus to remove large pathology. Do you have any recommendations on how to close those mini laparotomies to help prevent hernias in the future? Yeah, so I actually find that those... Um, uh, smaller uh, incisions are sometimes actually the more difficult to get fascial closure for because usually you're working to keep the skin incision small mm -hmm. and your fascial incision ends up a lot wider and so at the top and bottom ends of it you don't have great visualization of what you're trying to see. Exactly right. Um, so I, I think that those are challenging and, and we we saw that a little bit in the single port data. Um, so there was a, a nice study uh, published that looked at uh, the rate of hernia formation at a single port laparoscopic cholecystectomy site versus a multi-port laparoscopic cholecystectomy site. And it was like an eight-fold increase in the risk of hernias at the single wow. port site. Again, because I think you're struggling to close a fairly sizable fascial defect mm -hmm. through a very small skin incision. Um, so I, I honestly think, I well, it's not probably common practice. Uh, extending the skin incision so that you can get good visualization is probably the best way to ensure that you get good closure. Um, as a minimally invasive surgeon, it pains me to say that, but uh, maybe you <laughs> should a make little. the incision a little bit bigger. <laughs> and do you recommend, so let's say I have a three centimeter incision, um, running just one OPDS, or would you recommend doing two from each corner? So I think, I think for an incision like that, you could run one, but I think, again, the, the key is to make sure that your suture length, so if you have a three centimeter wound length, then your suture length should be at least 12 centimeters worth of suture that you've used, right? So that you maintain that four to one suture length to wound length ratio, and probably, honestly, even more is better. Um, so uh, just a lot of frequent small bites. Uh, and if it's one suture or two, it's really the total suture length that makes a difference, not necessarily how many sutures you use. Very helpful. Thank you. So in your grand rounds, you also discussed how to break the cycle. And one of the suggestions that you gave was be a better surgeon. And I think this obviously applies to a lot of different procedures, but I think it sometimes gets lost in a busy surgical practice. And I think it's really easy to plateau. Um, without deliberate and thoughtful actions on how to improve yourself and how you compare to other surgeons. And so I, you know, you mentioned keeping a personal case log and reviewing your own outcomes, and I think that's really important. And I do that now following patients long-term and see how they do. I also videotape all my surgeries and review my, my more complicated cases to try to help. But 
Um, one additional factor that, that you brought up was your America's Hernia Society Quality Collaborative. And I think that really excels and, and pushes surgeons to be better and adds, adds a, an, an even platform for a review at a national level. So I'm just curious, would you be able to explain this collaborative in a little bit more detail and how it's directly impacted your practice? Yeah. So um, so I do think that this is something that really can, can move our profession forward. Um, so the America's Hernia Society Quality Collaborative is a group of now about, I think, three 304 surgeons uh, from across the country who all collaborate uh, on quality improvement projects, uh, research, uh, and really honestly on patient care to try and improve the care for patients with um, defects of the abdominal wall. So the group was started in 2013 by, um, uh, by two surgeons, Dr. Michael Rosen from the, at that time Case Western and now at the Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Ben Polis, who uh, was at Vanderbilt and recently moved to Ohio State. And the two of them had this idea that if we gather and work collaboratively, we would, one, have much more patient-level data to work with. Um, So instead of looking all at our own individual case series and saying what works for us, we can look at academic practices, private practices, community practices, rural practices, and see what really works in the real world. Um, and they really worked very difficult to get, a, very hard to get a lot of buy-in from surgeons because it, it is surgeon-entered data, so it does take time to do it. But the output from it has been phenomenal. We've been able to answer a lot of questions um, that previously we weren't able to answer. Uh, we have moved now into phases where we are working to, together to really see what works and what doesn't. So I think one great example of that was we looked uh, to try and decrease readmissions following incisional hernia repair. And so looking at the data, we identified people who were high volume surgeons with very low rates of readmissions, and we surveyed them and asked them what they did in practice to try and keep their readmissions down. And what we found was that people who had low readmissions rate had implemented one of two systems. They either had mandatory kind of early return to clinic post-operative visits for wound uh, inspections, or they did phone follow-up uh, in an early time period after discharge to make sure that patients were doing okay and had a set criteria of questions. So working with those surgeons, we implemented a phone follow-up protocol where essentially we, when you filled out your patient data in the database, you would say whether or not they were asked this questionnaire, um, and then you would report whether or not they got readmitted. And we found that um, for patients that either had an early clinic visit or an early phone call, the rate of readmission was significantly lower in those patients than it was for people who had neither of those interventions. We also found that people who had both, if they had an early phone call and a clinic visit, they actually had a slightly higher rate of readmissions, which actually to us made sense because you called them, something was wrong, you brought them Mm -hmm. into clinic, you identified the problem, and you had to admit them for it. So it actually probably made surgery safer for them. And so I think working collaboratively with other surgeons, we can we can make bigger changes to all of our practices that actually have real benefit for patients. Um, and that's and that's really the goal of the collaborative. And I think it's been a, a very fun thing to be involved in and to watch. And uh, continues to change how I practice um, at every meeting. I kind of learn new things that I that I take home and implement into my practice here. So I think it's a phenomenal phenomenal group. Yeah, I think that's. A really excellent way in how to excel everybody for our common goal of, of you know, advancing um, um, surgical outcomes and patient care. We do not have anything like this within the OBGYN world right now that I can think of. Um, 
so this is a free platform for you guys. Is that correct? Yeah. So, uh, so initially, you just had to be a member of the America's Hernia Society, which I think was like a it's like one hundred and sixty dollars a year. It's a it's a cheap organization, which is good. Um, <laughs> uh, and then it was free to everyone. Uh, inputting the data does take some time. Um, and I would say that that's the that's the biggest impediment to most people is that they mm-hmm. feel like they don't have time. But I will tell you that there are a number of extremely busy clinical surgeons in this uh, quality collaborative, all of whom take the time to to do it. So, um, so I I think there is always enough time to do something that you are passionate about and that you care about and that you think will lead to better outcomes or make things better for people. And so, um, I think this is a great example of that. Really exciting. I know in an OB-GYN department level, Dr. Rice has been really great at um, promoting and supporting research here at UW. Dr. Ahmed Al-Niami has a, um, a great platform here called Gold Cup um, that we put local data in. But I think, just like you said, advancing this at a national level, international level, would only you know advance this even further. Right. So thank you for that insight. Sure. All right. So I have a question for you with you wearing your medical education hat for a moment here. So with this collaborative, I see that you're able to view benchmarking between peer institutions um, as well as drill down to the local level for individual patient data. And in this push of more proficiency-based residency education, um, there's a lot of thought regarding high volume versus low volume surgeons and when do learners reach that proficiency level? And furthermore, what qualifies someone as being a high-volume surgeon, meaning how many cases per year bump somebody into that category? So I'm just curious, with the information that you guys are gathering in this collaborative, do you have any insight on what defines a low-volume versus high-volume surgeon, and what's that cutoff of when people really seem you know, proficient? Mm-hmm. So we, we haven't really looked at that. Um, when you're in the collaborative, you can always see your own uh, data, um, and I can see, uh, as sort of the administrator for our UW program, I can see our hospital-level data, but I can see which data point we are. I can't see which program is any other data point. So every other program is blinded to me. Got it. I can see all the data points. So I could see um, where we are. Are we an outlier in SSI or SSO rates uh, or recurrence rates or readmission rates? Um uh, but I can't see the program to the next to me, to me uh, right above me or right below me. So we actually make it so that you can see where you are, but you can't see where anyone else is, which is, I think, the same thing they do with NSQIP and a, a lot mm-hmm. of other quality databases like this. So it's good that you always know where you stand. Um, uh, and it's good that it gives you a little bit of this competitive nature to try and want to be better than the programs that are currently better than you, but you can't tell which one is which. Um, and from the education standpoint, um, we haven't used this data to really look at um, learning curves or mastery, proficiency, or competency. Uh, we've used it more to look at uh, quality and outcomes. That makes sense. So how do you work with your patients before their surgeries to lower the risks of hernia complications? Yeah. So I think that's really one of the keys to better outcomes here. Um, uh, hernia patients in general uh, have formed a hernia usually because there's something um, something about them or some risk factor that they have has led their tissue not to heal properly. Um, there, in my mind, are sort of risk factors that are modifiable and risk factors that are not modifiable. Uh, the big modifiable risk factors that we see are smoking, uh, obesity, and diabetes. Um, then obviously a little bit of their nutritional state and their uh, presence or absence of uh, infections. So are they MRSA positive or negative? 
Um, I unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, uh, we have an excellent transplant program here at the University of Wisconsin, so I see a lot of patients after a solid abdominal organ transplantation. And to me, they have non-modifiable risk factors, right? They have immunosuppression that they need to be on no matter what we do because they need their organs to continue to work. And so to me, that's something that I can't change. I also can't change how many previous surgeries the patient's had or how many meshes they've had before or if they've had a mesh infection. So to me, that's sort of the hand you're dealt. But you can work with patients to try and engage them to make themselves better for the next operation. And to me, that's smoking cessation. Um, so we work with the Wisconsin Quit Line um, and the Smoking Cessation Program here at UW to try and get resources to our patients to try and help them to quit. Uh, we do check nicotine and cottonine levels on the patients. Um, we usually check that two weeks prior to surgery because it's a send-out for us. I tell every patient that's a smoker, if it's positive, they're getting canceled. Um, and then on the day of surgery, I ask them if they've had one in between then and now. I certainly think they could lie to me and get away with it, um, but at the end, they're sort of really only lying to themselves. Uh, and then, um, uh, honestly, we'll cancel them the day of surgery if they say that they've smoked. I just don't think it's worth taking the no. risk to do an operation that you think is going to fail because of some patient factor that you can improve before. Um, the obesity, uh, we try to get them to lose weight. We don't know what sort of the right cutoff number is. There's no great study that's ever shown, uh, you know, at a BMI of 34.2, their risk changes. Um, but there are several studies that show that for every change in BMI point, uh, there is a benefit uh, uh, of decreased weight compared to uh, increased weight. So um, it reduces the risk of surgical site infections, it reduces the risk of surgical site occurrences, uh, and clearly reduces the risk of recurrence. So we try to get everyone down to a BMI of 35 if possible. Um, people between 35 and 40, if we can fix them via a minimally invasive approach, which will have less wound complications, um, I will often do that. Um, but over 40, we really try not to operate at all because I think the risk is extremely high that they will fail. Um, there are always extenuating circumstances and sort of case-by-case -case basis, but that we try to really uh, get people to work with weight loss. To help facilitate that, um, we uh, refer them to our medical weight management program. Um, so a lot of people will try diet and exercise and unfortunately have the usual result that it doesn't work all that well or certainly not all that quickly. Um, so we have a medical weight management program where they go on a very low calorie diet consisting mostly of uh, low carbohydrate, high protein shakes and bars. Um, and they work with our uh, members of our bariatric team to try and uh, uh, work on their other uh, healthier behavioral habits. Uh, and in some cases, we've had patients who wanted to pursue bariatric surgery. And so we've done a weight loss procedure on them. We wait six to 12 months for them to lose enough weight that their BMI is good. And then we take them back and fix their hernia eventually. So um, we've had some success with that as well, although it requires significant investment on the part of the patient. Uh, and then um, for uh, diabetes, so uh, we try and get their hemoglobin A1Cs under 7.4. Uh, that seems mm. to be a pretty relatively good cutoff point where we see a change in inflection point in terms of surgical site infections. Uh, and so we work with our endocrinologists and our diabetes team here to try and uh, improve their uh, diabetic control and check an A1C on everyone. Uh, uh, and once they're under that number, we move forward with surgery. 
So these are really excellent lifestyle choices to be making in the long term, right? Like better sugar control and smoking cessation, weight loss. And, right, but they're all hard. But they're, they're all, all really, really hard, really hard yeah. exactly. So I think that's excellent that you guys require all that before you actually operate. I'm curious, what kind of long-term sustainability do you see in these things? I would guess it's low. Exactly. I would guess it's low. I was um, hoping it would be high. I mean, I, th- I, think, uh, I think those are hard things to ask people mm-hmm. to do, right? Uh, and in the worst case scenario, sometimes we're asking people to both quit smoking and lose weight, which is like impossible, right? Yeah. Like if you quit smoking, most people gain weight. Yeah. Um, so it, it is asking a tremendous amount. Um, I think we have a little bit of a luxury of doing that being sort of the the final common pathway mm-hmm. for patients, right? I always worry that surgeons out in the community who um, are really dependent on their referral base. If they made all their patients do this and the primary care physicians are getting angry that it's going to be harder for them to continue to mandate that. Um, I think we have a little benefit in that. Usually if they're seeing me, it's because a lot of other surgeons have already said no to mm-hmm. them. And so now they're, they're kind of at their last straw. Um, so I, I don't know how reproducible that is in every other program. Uh, but I do think it, 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 it helps patients um, in the longer run because they get an operation that hopefully will be more durable than one that is done while they're smoking or while they're obese or while their uh, hemoglobin A1C is above 8 or 9. Um, so I, I think it's important, but I do think it's it's difficult um, for a lot of practices to implement, and I certainly think it's difficult for patients to do. It requires seeing them back, helping to counsel them, uh, trying to get them involved with a lot of other resources that we have available here, thankfully, but it's uh, it's a lot to ask. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the only other thing I would say is I think the more minimally invasive surgery we do, the better. Um, yes. Very clearly, when you make smaller cuts uh, uh, and and smaller fascial incisions, the risk of big hernias is way decreased. I mean, um, 10 years ago in bariatric surgery or 20 years ago in bariatric surgery when we were doing everything open, uh, I mean, the hernia formation rate was enormous. And now that we do laparoscopic gastric bypasses, Patients are not only home in like a day or two as opposed to a week or two, but they're doing great. They don't form hernias. They lose weight. Like I think the benefits of minimally invasive surgery, whether that's laparoscopic or robotic, are very clear that the wound complication rates and the rate of hernia formation goes down. So I think more and more and greater adoption of minimally invasive approaches uh, would significantly reduce the rate and burden of hernia disease. So finding those people in your community who excel at minimally invasive techniques, utilize those people. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great suggestion. Well, Dr. Greenberg, it's been a pleasure to have you today on our podcast. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks to Dr. King and Dr. Greenberg for recording their conversation for this bonus episode. If you enjoyed this in-depth look at surgical techniques, you might like The Surgery Set, a podcast from our colleagues in the UW Department of Surgery. You can learn more about it at surgery.wisc.edu podcast. Next week, we're back to our regular format to learn about menopause from Makeba Williams. Dr. Williams is a North American Menopause Society certified menopause practitioner. We talked about the signs and symptoms of menopause and how it can affect our physical, emotional, and sexual health. She also provided an update on hormone therapy, what options are available, and why she does or doesn't recommend hormone therapy to certain patients. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. 
And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WiskOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.